we are doing this morning then is this sort of occasional series uh, that I've snappily called a helicopter ride over the letters of the New Testament that really rolls off the tongue. But uh, that's what we've been doing. We've been making our way, taking a sort of bird's eye view, surveying the terrain of each of the letters. And we come to a big one today uh, because we're, we're dealing with the letter to the Hebrews. And we don't know who wrote it, by the way. Um, sometimes people say they're convinced that Paul wrote it, but uh, we don't know who wrote the letter to the Hebrews. And what we've been doing each time as well is I've been borrowing the uh, Warren Wearsby's titles because he, he does all the books of the whole Bible, actually, but the New Testament, and he, he uses one word to sort of capture the essence of what that letter or book is about. And his title for Hebrews is actually quite a provocative one. And there's a certain irony associated with it because he, he uses be confident to capture what Hebrews is all about. Um, and the reason there's a certain irony with that is because a few believers, when they read the letter to the Hebrews, actually find it anything but a confidence-inspiring read. And I'll come to that in a little minute, why that is the case. Um, but I like to identify a key verse each time, uh, an underlying verse, one that sort of just captures what it's all about. And I think uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23 is a great choice because the writer says there, gives this exhortation to his readers, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Okay, that just about nails it, I think. But the reason that uh, some Christians, when reading Hebrews, they don't find it this sort of confidence-inspiring read is because of the presence in the letter of the so-called warning passages. And it's absolutely true to say that sort of peppered throughout the letter, you get these very direct passages warning the readers of the consequences of turning away from Christ. In actual fact, there's five of them, five of these passages. You get them in chapter 2, then one that sort of runs over chapters 3 and 4, chapter 6, chapter 10, and chapter 12. So as you read the letter, every so often the, the, the author makes sure you go through this sort of cycle of be warned. Now, there's a couple of things that if we keep in mind will actually show you why Wearsby's choice of be confident is actually a brilliant choice. If you understand those warning passages in the context of the letter, there's a couple of things that we always ought to keep in mind. And the first one is pretty obvious, but remember who the, the letter is written to. 
It was written for all of us in a sense, but who was it written to in the first instance? The clue is in the title. It's the letter to the Hebrews. That means to Christians, people who have professed faith in Jesus as Messiah, who were coming from a Jewish background. And to be honest, even if you only read Hebrews one time in your life, you would pick up that this, this is just a letter saturated in Jewish thought. There, there's just continual quotations from the Old Testament, and there are continual references to the practice of Judaism, the, the, the Jewish religion. It's just full of uh, religious, the religious practice of the Jews. So remember, first of all, that's who it's written to. But the second thing to bear in mind as well is the historical situation that the readers found themselves in. Judaism, the practice of the Jewish religion, it was just continuing as it had for centuries, even though they had rejected their Messiah, okay? They'd rejected Jesus. They had cooperated with the Roman authorities. The Jewish establishment had got rid of their Messiah, but things were just continuing as they had. The temple stood, the priesthood functioned, the sacrifices were being offered. So what that means then is that this letter was clearly written before AD 70, because all that came to a very abrupt end in AD 70 when the Romans came in and destroyed the temple, and with it went the priesthood functioning and the sacrifices being offered. So in other words, this letter is being written in the context of those early years of the church, when there was this sort of growing alienation between those who followed Jesus as Messiah and those who stuck with the Jewish establishment and just continued with their religion as it was, that this is written into the situation of growing estrangement, even simmering hostility. And the, writer, the, the readers of the letter now find themselves at a crossroads. They have professed faith in Jesus as their Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, who the Jewish establishment rejected. They've done that. In fact, if you read chapter 10, verses 32 to 34, you'll see that some have paid a high price for following Jesus. But some of them now are beginning to pull back from their costly allegiance to Jesus. Some are actually starting to drift back to Judaism. They're starting to go back to the high priest, to the temple, to the sacrifices. And that is the situation that the writer is addressing. That's where all the warning passages come in to say, you, pull, you move away from Jesus. 
You go back to what you had. And it will be eternal damnation. And if you want an absolutely key verse in understanding what's in the author's mind as he writes to these Jewish background believers in Jesus who profess faith in Jesus, the absolutely key verse is Hebrews 6 verse 9 where the author explains how it is that he's writing to his readers. It comes hard on the heels of one of those warning passages. And this is what he says. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, the things that accompany salvation. Do you see what he's saying? He's issuing his very stark and solemn warnings about turning away from Jesus. But then he said, look, even though I'm speaking like this, we're actually persuaded of your salvation. But he, the author doesn't know. He can't see into the hearts of the readers. He can't know the reality in every life. He's not God in that sense. So that is why you get these warning passages for people at that particular time in that crossroads. But of course it does apply that if someone comes into contact with the gospel, goes with it, if they turn away, if they turn away from that and say, no, really, that wasn't really for me. This is what's for me. Well, draw the deductions. Anyway, what I want to, uh, with sort of getting that warning passage bit out of the way, I want, I want to take the rest of the time to talk about why we can be confident as believers. Uh, and I'm going to give you six reasons. We'll see how far we get through them. Uh, but what I really hope, what I, all I want to do is to sort of whet your appetite so that you in your own time will just say, I'm just going to read the book of Hebrews again. And I suspect you'll see these things rise to the surface if you do that. So six reasons why we can be confident as believers in Jesus Christ according to what we find in the letter to the Hebrews. Number one, and you're going to get a couple of resonances with what, where we've already been this morning, we can be confident because of who our Savior is. And the opening verses of the letter to the Hebrews are arguably the most majestic words in all of the New Testament if not the whole Bible. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand 
of the majesty in heaven. The writer has this message for his readers. Jesus is superior to everyone. And he begins in chapter 1, he begins with angels. And then what he does as he writes on is he just works his way through some of the greats of the Jewish faith, of the Jewish religion. And it doesn't matter who it is. Moses, Joshua, Abraham. It doesn't matter what role they held. Prophet, priest, king. Jesus is greater. For he is God the Son. How does our confidence grow as believers? How does it become firm and unshakable? How does that happen? Well, the writer tells us in chapter 12, verse 2, and we've been doing it this morning. Where will our our confidence grow? Keep your focus where? Looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Drink in who Jesus is. That's why we're spending five Sunday evenings on the most practical subject you will ever engage with as a Christian. Who is Jesus? Understanding who he is. That's where you will become confident and unshakable and unswerving in the hope that you profess. Number two, we can be confident because our salvation is indestructible. And when it comes to, comes to this truth, this point, I don't really think there's anything better that, than we can do than just take a few selected verses from throughout the letter. So have your Bible in your hand. These are all underlined verses Look out for a key word. Look out for a recurrent word as we think about our indestructible salvation. Hebrews 5 verse 9. And once made perfect, that is our high priest, our Lord Jesus, once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. For all who obey him. Verses that Andrew referred to earlier. Hebrews 6. I read them on Wednesday night as well. As we thought about the God who cannot lie. Hebrews 6, 17. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear. To the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things and that it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered 
on our behalf. Just let me give you the vocabulary again there. Unchanging, promised, confirmed, oath, unchangeable, impossible, firm and secure. Chapter 9, verse 12. He, that is the Lord Jesus, did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, so obtaining eternal redemption. Verse 15. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may received, receive the promised inheritance, eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free. Chapter 12, verse 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Chapter 13, verse 5. God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And verse 20 of Hebrews 13 now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. We just read there about an eternal salvation, an eternal redemption, an eternal inheritance, and an eternal covenant. There's one thing you can be sure about your salvation, believer. It's eternal. We can be confident because of who our Savior is. We can be confident because our salvation is indestructible. Thirdly, we can be confident because Christ's sacrifice is perfect. Again, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to flag up for you key ideas that you'll get throughout the letter. So with your Bible in your hand again, here's a very common thread that runs through Hebrews. Christ's sacrifice is once for all. It never needs to be repeated because it is the one perfect true sacrifice. Hebrews 7:27. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he sacrificed himself. Hebrews 9, 26. Otherwise, Christ would have to suffer many times since the creation of the world, but he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Verse 28, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins 
of many. Chapter 10, verse 10. And by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 12. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 14. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And it is because of the perfection of his once for all sacrifice that the letter to the Hebrews tells us that our high priest has now sat down. That's another key idea in the letter, you get it five times. The author says that Jesus is seated on the throne of God, at the right hand of the throne of God. So put yourself into the situation of the readers. They make their way to the temple on that one day in the year, the Day of Atonement, when the Jewish high priest gets to go into the most holy place with the blood of bulls and goats, with the incense to protect him in that. Could you imagine the high priest when he's there before the ark, sitting down, sitting on the throne of God? Well, if they turned away from Jesus, they were going back to a priest who got in on one day and never sat because his work was never done because atonement was never, ever made. We've got a seated Savior. And for all who trust in the value of that one sacrifice, the result is another key idea that we are cleansed. We have a cleansed conscience by the blood of Christ. We ought to be careful how we talk about cleansing by the blood of Christ. At times we sound like pagans, that God is spraying the blood of Christ around the place. The blood of Christ is a spiritual transaction in that it is applied to the conscience of the sinner. Our conscience needs cleansed of guilt. We know we are sentenced by the law of God to eternal death. But the blood of Christ is applied to our conscience. That is an immaterial thing. And it is cleansed because we know the price has been paid. Guilt is taken away. That's how to understand that. Fourthly, we can be confident because death has been defeated. And what greater fear is there than the fear of death? Well, what is the relationship of the person who believes in Jesus to the prospect of death and indeed the experience of death? Well, there is one marvelous passage in Hebrews chapter 2. Listen out for three references to death. Believers don't need to shy away from talking about death. We don't need to do that. Here's why. Hebrews 2 verse 14. 
Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Death has lost its power, believer, in Jesus. The devil who held this power has had it stripped from him. How? Hebrews 2 verse 9. We see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Everyone will die by the Lord's return. But those who believe in Jesus will die in the good of his victory over death. That's why John Owen, the great Puritan writer, called one of his most famous works, I love this title, The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. There's a title. Fifth, we can be confident because Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. And that's actually a phrase lifted directly from Hebrews 7, verse 22. In Hebrews 8, verse 6, we're told that Jesus is the mediator of a superior covenant. Jesus has made this covenant, this relationship between God and people who believe in Jesus, he has made it effective and he guarantees its permanence. The new covenant is underwritten by the blood of Christ, his sacrificial death. And what are the terms of the new covenant that we celebrate every time what we do what we did a few moments ago? When you take that cup in your hand that points you to the shed blood of Christ through which this covenant has come into effect between God and those who believe in Jesus, what are the terms of that covenant? Well, if you read Hebrews chapter 8, verses 7 to 12, the writer will contrast it with the old covenant, the law. And he will say that the new covenant with Christ, it is so vastly superior because it is not a two-party covenant. The problem with the old covenant was this. Both parties had to be faithful. There was no problem with God being faithful. The problem was with Israel being faithful. But what are the terms of the new covenant that you celebrate every time you take that cup? Hebrews 10, verses 16 and 17. This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. It is not a two-party covenant. God says he will do it. 
You come to Jesus in faith, and God says, I'll take you on, and I'll put my law on your mind and your heart, and I will forgive your sins. That, those are the terms you celebrate. There's nothing more significant you'll ever do than take that cup in your hand and what it symbolizes, your forgiveness, your transformation, and your future in glory depends totally on Jesus Christ and the merits of his shed blood. Hallelujah. Sixthly and finally, we can be confident because we have a sympathetic high priest. Listen to these stunning words from Hebrews 9, verse 24. For Christ did not enter into a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered into heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence, or literally, in the face of God. He entered in for us to represent us in all our need. And in actual fact, the letter of Hebrews is basically an exposition of the superiority of the high priesthood of Jesus vis-a-vis the high priest under the old covenant in Judaism. And surely some of the most comforting and strengthening words in all Scripture come in the letter to the Hebrews in connection with the high priestly ministry of Jesus. So I'm going to, as we come to the end, I'm just going to read you some words about our high priest, and I want you to look up and see seated on the throne of God the reason why you can be confident, believer. Hebrews 2, 17 For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Chapter 4, 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who was tempted like us in every way, yet did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And finally, verses again that Andrew read earlier, Hebrews 7, verse 23. Now there have been many of those priests, Judaism's priests, since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Brothers and sisters, hold unswervingly to the faith we profess because of who our Savior is, 
because our salvation is indestructible, because his sacrifice is perfect, because death has been defeated, because Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant, and because we have a sympathetic high priest who saves completely. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.